from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, naturalist Nat Wheelwright is on the show today, and he's sharing an incredible resource that he created with co-author Bernd Heinrich. It's a five-year calendar journal, and it's called The Naturalist Notebook. And when Story Publishing sent it to me back before Thanksgiving, I have to tell you that I actually gasped when I opened it because it's so beautiful and it's such a unique resource. I think it's great for gardeners. It's great for folks who are working on being more mindful. It's a humble tool that can yield powerful results because it's a wonderful way to not only record the goings-on in the natural world around you, but it's a simple and clever way to begin to see the rhythms and the patterns of nature around you. You're going to love listening to naturalist Nat Wheelwright, and you're especially going to enjoy getting yourself and your friends a copy of The Naturalist Notebook. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. It's great to be back. I took a break over the month of December and into the first week of the holiday, and it was such a great time to spend extra time at home with my family, take a break from the show. I know it can be hard if you have a favorite podcast and Still Growing might be your favorite podcast, and it can be tough to take those breaks as a listener. But as a content creator, I think they are so neat necessary. So I really appreciate you guys hanging with me and coming back to the show. It really means a lot. So I hope you enjoyed your Christmas break. And I hope you had a chance to maybe check out some other gardening podcasts. There are so many wonderful ones out there. And, you know, I always advocate for gardening podcasts because if you enjoy listening to a variety of shows, that's how they stick around. That's how we can make sure there's lots of wonderful gardening programming for us to listen to. So make sure you're doing that, that you're regularly listening to your gardening podcasts. It's so important to the vitality and the longevity of those shows. I'd also like to remind you that we have a Facebook group for the show. So if you want to continue the conversation, you want a chance to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, I think about 90% of the guests that have been on the show are in the Facebook group. You can certainly follow up with them, ask them any questions that you have. They love to hear from listeners. The group is totally free. It's something that I host for listeners of the show, and the people that are in the group are wonderful. They're gardeners from all all different skill levels and locations, and you can find it on Facebook just by typing in the name of our group. Just the next time you're in Facebook, search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and the listener community for the show will pop up, and then just request to join. Now, there are a number of benefits that you can enjoy by joining the group. First, you get access to all of the gardening articles that I curate for you. That's super helpful because you You don't need to track down links or take notes during the Garden News Roundup because it's all put in the group and then some. So 
I try to give you tons of information to help you throughout the year in your gardening experience. And all of that information can be accessed in the Facebook group. And then finally, whenever there are listener giveaways, like there will be today with Nat Wheelwright's wonderful resource, The Naturalist Notebook, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick those lucky listeners. So if you want to be in the group of potential winners, definitely join the group. It's free and easy to join. The next time you're in Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, every week I do a fairly lengthy garden news roundup, but since this is my first week back after Christmas break, I'm just going to focus on the quotables segment that I put together for this week's show. It's kind of a mix of the shopping segment and the quotables segment, which are both part of the garden news roundup. And the quotes that I found that I thought were perfect for today's show about keeping a record, keeping track of the natural world around you, of the things that are happening in your garden, and they all came from this wonderful book that I bought for my mom for Christmas, and I loved it so much, I bought myself a copy, and when I told my mom that just the other night, she said, oh, good, because I felt like I had to give you my copy when I was done with it, because I really wanted you to read it, too. But the book is called See Your Way to Mindfulness, Ideas and Inspiration to Open Your Eye, and I is just the capital letter I. So it's Ideas and Inspiration to Open Your Eye, and it's by David Schiller. It has so many wonderful, wonderful ideas, beautiful images. It's just such a wonderful little book. It's not big. It's a little square book, and it's it's just gorgeous. It's inspiring. It's a wonderful way to start your day. See your way to mindfulness. Anyway, all of the quotes from this week's quotable segment are from this book, See Your Way to Mindfulness. Now, I picked all of these quotes because they all have something to do with observing the natural world, having genuine contact with the natural world. The first one's by Aristotle. In all things of nature, there is something of the marvelous. Here's one by Sharon Olds. I am doing something I learned early to do. I am paying attention to small beauties, whatever I have, as if it were our duty to find things to love, to bind ourselves to this world. Here's a good one from Oscar Wilde. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Here's one from Frederick Frank. The eye awakened is the eye in love. Love that one. This one's from Andy Warhol. You need to let the little things that would ordinarily bore you suddenly thrill you. Here's one from Vincent van Gogh. It is looking at things for a long time that ripens you and gives you a deeper understanding. This is from Henry Matisse. The artist has to look at everything as though he saw it for the first time. He has to look at life as he did when he was a child. The first step toward creation is to see everything as it really is, and that demands constant effort. 
I like that one because no one said mindfulness is easy. And then finally, I wanted to end with this one from Paul Hawken. Ralph Waldo Emerson once asked what we would do if the stars only came out once every thousand years. No one would sleep that night, of course. The world would become religious overnight. We would be ecstatic, delirious, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night and we watch television. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Next week, we'll have a full Garden News Roundup. And just a reminder that you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, The Naturalist Notebook with Nat Wheelwright. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I was just stunned when I first looked at the cover of The Naturalist Notebook written by Nat Wheelwright and Bernd Heinrich. It's such a treasure because it's a beautiful personal resource that's loaded with these amazing hand-drawn sketches, these pen and ink drawings and watercolor that are just simply gorgeous. And 99% of them, by the way, are created by Bernd Heinrich. And then there's this wonderful information and inspiration from Nat. The Naturalist Notebook is a five-year calendar journal. It's meant to be written in and reviewed periodically. The spreadsheet format is set up to give you a space to write in a two-page spread that covers about eight days over five years. So you have have about 40 squares to write in, and it's just the most beautiful, simple resource. And here's the best part about it. We put in our little observations in the squares, the little dramas that we discover when we look closely at our gardens, at nature, take joy in observing these small things around us, and let ourselves get carried away by our own curiosity. And then over time, those individual observations and recordings begin to tell a story, showing patterns that would otherwise go unnoticed, revealing the rhythm of nature in the world around us. That's a tremendous gift that can only come from recording nature in this fashion. In today's episode, you'll hear Nat talk about how we can all benefit from this gorgeous resource that he's created with Bernd Heinrich. He's going to help us become more observant, something anyone can do, according to Nat. And he should know because he has a special knack for helping others relate to the natural world. He's genuinely curious. His mind devises these experiments and questions that have a very intuitive and sensitive origin. Now, one thing you can take away from today's chat with Nat is his reverence for the natural world. Just pay special attention to the ways he describes being out in nature and see if you aren't inspired by the way he clearly savors his time in nature, enjoying every minute of genuine contact with the natural world. Well, Nat Wheelwright, welcome to the Still Growing Podcast. 
Thank you. It's wonderful to be talking with you, Jennifer. Well, I have to say, I was completely blown away when I got this book from Story Publishing because it's absolutely gorgeous. When you write a book like this, I mean, obviously, your your partner in crime is Berndt, and he does all of these beautiful drawings and illustrations, and they're, they're throughout the book. They grace many, many pages in the cover of the book, but it's still always quite something to get the final product in your hand and see what that looks like, isn't it? It is, and, and this is really um, was a happy surprise that design staff at Story Publishing is is really top-notch. Um, when we got the galley proofs on this, uh, my jaw dropped. Uh, it's not at all what I expected. Oh, it isn't? No, I mean, well, my original concept for the book was uh, to to get into people's hands a, a, what I think is a super successful way of being a, a, a garden or a nature journalist. And I thought I would write a little bit of instruction at the beginning that would be kind of like a a lawnmower user manual or something that you glance through once and then you get busy with your observations. But um, when uh, my co-author, Baron Heinrich, who is, of course, a an award-winning natural history writer himself, um, when he sent me a little thumb drive with 900 pictures on it, I, I couldn't believe what was there. And then when Story put it all together and we decided to, to write a more substantial book around the calendar journal idea... Um, then it just it took a form that I just never would have expected. You know, what I loved about it is that it will, first of all, it's it's beautiful. You've got all of the advantages of publishing a book in the year 2017 because it's gorgeous, the digital, the images, the photography, that's all there. But then it has this charm of a five-year diary or a five-year journal. And I was thinking back, I have a good friend, Diane, and her mother kept... Uh, diaries like throughout her entire life. And she always used the five-year diaries. That was the format that she liked. And there was some time within the past 10 or 12 years that my friend was saying, I need to get my mom another diary and I can't find one. They don't make those five-year diaries anymore. This is a, a format that that's not unfamiliar or territory throughout time. It's been used before. But in your book, it's it's the combination of using all of the great publishing technology plus this this charming way of recording information. Well, yeah, it's true. I, I when um, th- this is this is a, a kind of a journaling that I've been actually doing for thirty years, and um, my emphasis, although I, we often make notes about our our garden when we plant certain crops and what a year is like in terms of our harvest and when we ate the last potato or onion. But mostly my journal for 30 years has been a, a, a natural history journal. And there, even though natural history journaling has uh, a long, long history, um, and there are many ways to do it, I actually have not seen in the natural history world a journal of this format. I have seen it in the gardening world. Uh, but the real advantage is kind of a, a spreadsheet-like format where you, at a glance, can see eight days of a month and five years. And so there's sort of 40 little squares and you can make the quickest comparisons between years. And um, I think that's a real advantage, especially for naturalists who who are used to doing something more like a diary where you would have a, a diary for 2014 and a separate book for 2015 and another one for 2016. But if you wanted to pull the information out, you have to, dig through each of these books, whereas this kind of 
almost spreadsheet form, format of their calendar journal um, just makes that instantaneous, really easy. Well, and the other thing, and I know we're going to talk about this later as we dive into kind of the structure of your book and some of the advantages, but when you have a format for chronicling what's going on in the natural world and you can see five years on a, a, a spreadsheet like that, you can pick out patterns. Exactly. That's the whole point. So this is um, uh, one of the things I often say that uh, about what is different about this approach versus kind of more traditional journaling about gardens or about nature is that it's not so much about the putting in of information. It's about getting the information back out in a way that's useful to you. So I found I've learned such a tremendous amount about the rhythms of nature and, and about my garden in my own backyard because of this format. So it's it helps you learn, um, not just records what you've seen. And before we get too far into this, I just have to stop and say that the natural first question that I should have started with is, how did you become a naturalist? But I, but before I have you answer that question, I have to tease you a little bit because when I was looking through different resources online that talk about you, I understand your full name is Nathaniel Thoreau Wheelwright. You were almost destined to be a naturalist. Well, it probably had some, uh, it probably had some effect, I'm sure. Um, actually, I will tell you that the family pronounces it Thoreau. Thoreau. And in, in sort of the French way. Um, and Thoreau, in fact, was, uh, was the nephew of my grandmother's great grandmother. Okay. Um, okay. So it is uh, none of the Thoreau family, actually. Another, uh, Henry David Thoreau and his three siblings, none of them had children. So the only direct line is through his aunt, Nancy Thoreau, who was, I think it's my grandmother's great-great-grandmother. So anyway, honestly, honestly earned, um, but obviously had an impact on my life, I guess. Either that or my or my parents just sort of anticipated that I was going to fall in love with nature and spend my career uh, learning more and more about it. Well, lucky you. I, I listened to this other interview that you gave, and I understand that your grandparents on both sides were farmers and naturalists. Yeah. Well, actually, on, on my um, on the main side, my father's side, my uh, grandmother was definitely a farmer. My um, the other side is more were more naturalists. So it was my mother's parents who gave me my first pair of binoculars and taught me how to identify birds when I was uh, eleven years old. You know, the other thing that I really appreciated is right in the beginning, as people are getting to know you. And understanding this concept of this journal that you're proposing is that there is an image of your own journal. And what I really liked about it is that there are some days where there's nothing, where they're blank. And what's nice about that is that you're not OCD about this. You're not obsessive about it. And it doesn't put that pressure on people. I mean, we shouldn't have that kind of relationship with the natural world. It seems unnatural to be too crazy about trying to record every single day. Yeah, I think if you were to, to, um, to do a survey and ask people, did you ever keep a diary or a journal? And almost everybody would say, yes, I did. You know, when I was 14, my innermost thoughts, or when I was 20, I decided I would record things. And then if you were to ask a follow-up question, how long did you go <laughs> before you ran out of steam? Most people just find it exhausting, and so they don't continue it. 
And if you want to become really sensitive to the rhythms of nature around you and, and learn about uh, your environment, you really need to take the long view. So how do you reconcile that? How do you how do you record things, but make it so it's sustainable that you have enough energy to do it? And the answer is a pretty obvious one: make it make it easy on yourself. And if you do, you can continue for a long time. I've been doing this for thirty years, and the reason I do is, as you say, I don't feel the slightest guilt if I either don't happen to look out the window to notice something, or I'm too busy to write something down, or I have a cold for two weeks or I go on a trip with my family. Um, It's not a problem for me to see a blank page um, or a blank cell, really, in the case of the calendar journal. So I think that I think the two really important points about long term nature journaling or garden journaling are are to um, don't feel that you have to do it every day and and also make your observations sort of super telegraphic, abbreviated, quick. I can uh, I can butter. Uh, a, a piece of toast with one hand and make a note of the first snowflake with the other hand and it takes me five seconds and put my book back and fin- continue with my breakfast. Um, so that's that's kind of my attitude about how to how to be a long-term nature journalist. Well, and the other thing that you point out is that the rewards are so rich. And as I was reading through what you were talking about in the introduction, it was really striking me that it's a skill keeping good information or tracking things and getting comfortable with that entire process is really a skill. It is. It's a skill, but it's a skill that's within reach of of every single person, I think. And the trick is to uh, start with things that interest you and that are important to you. Um, You may not be able to recognize the different songs and calls of birds around you, but that's okay. You know that one says caw, caw, and one says chickadee. Um, and if you can distinguish those, you can start to make an observation, pay attention, be be mindful of where you are. And now, now you've learned a, a bird sound. And then if you have the time and interest, you can actually find out who made that sound. But it's really a question of being, of, of starting habits that make you alert to the world around you. Well, and the other thing you point out in your book is that there is a historical reference for this. There's some empirical data on it. One of the first accounts was done by Gilbert White back in Germany. He did this thing called a garden calendar. And you talked about that. This was back in the year 1751, and you show uh, what one of his calendar pages looked like. So, for instance, this was June 7th, two rows of early Spanish beans in Turner's plot. June 14th, earthed up a row of celery. June 24th, sowed first crop of radishes. So... This really, I, I guess he was subscribing to kind of the same philosophy that you had, which is it doesn't have to be super long and it doesn't have to be very detailed, but just these quick little observations start to accumulate over time and then you can start to pull out really interesting observations about what's going on. Yeah, no, his book, The Natural History of Selborne, which by the way was, uh, was in England, um, was probably one of the most influential books ever read. Very few people know of it now, but it's had something like 200 different publications, a very widely read, very influential book. And uh, and essentially, all we're doing is following in the footsteps of, of Gilbert White and this small uh, English 
country town parson who was making careful observations of his garden and nature around him. Right in this section of your book, you say, good natural history is often parochial. What do you mean by that? Well, parochial often has kind of a derogatory negative connotation. We just think, oh boy, that person is is narrow-minded. But in fact, the point of being a good backyard naturalist is to be narrow, (laughs) is to know your backyard really well. Um, So there's sort of a good side of being parochial. It's, It's being attentive to small things around you, which is a wonderful pleasure in itself. Berndt expressed some of this, some of the benefit of being parochial in a quote that you cite of his, and it's on page 14, and I was wondering if you'd read that for us. Sure. Let me thumb to page 14. I should have Berndt read this, actually, but he's not here. Yep, yep. Um, So this is Berndt speaking uh, in a book that he wrote called The Geese of Beaver Bog. Good natural history is often parochial. That is the point. One comes to know a place so well that it becomes almost predictable. Berndt expressed it perfectly in his book, The Geese of Beaver Bog. Quote, much of what I see is by now becoming repetitious and familiar to me. This is something to strive for because without the attainment of familiarity, the significant remains invisible. Immersion in the familiar also brings me a feeling of tranquility and comfort, a sense that all is right with the world. And I love that you pulled out that that quote, without the attainment of familiarity, the significant remains invisible. This is how we can all be so oblivious to what's going on in the natural world around us, right in our own backyard. Yep. <laughs> the next page talks about the 21st century naturalist. I loved that title. And right away, I thought there was an interesting paradox. At least it struck me as the mother of four teenagers. You wrote in the beginning of this, you said, this is an extraordinary time to be a naturalist. Never before could the average person pick up an unfamiliar insect, flower, or mushroom and without even leaving the forest, immediately identify it and discover everything known about it by consulting a smartphone. And to me, the paradox of this is I can imagine having this conversation with my kids about, okay, guys, here's this journal. We're going to record stuff. And uh, they're going to completely agree with what you just said, that yes, they can they can search it up, as my son John likes to say, when he can't find something, he's going to search it up. But at the same time, if I would talk to them about, we're going to record this, I think their immediate reaction might be, well, why? Everything I need to know is already on the internet. Yeah, but what a, how much more comfortable to have it be inside your head, uh, to be a, a more intimate uh, companion. Um, no, this, this chapter was, uh, was a chapter I wanted to approach very carefully. I actually spoke with several of my uh, Bowdoin College students who are, of course, in their early 20s and had them, um, had them explain to me their perspective. One thing that kids like your children, I'm sure, and uh, my kids are a little bit older, but um, this generation does not like to be lectured about how tied they are to their devices and um, how they have earbuds in their ears. Um, They hate having older people (laughs) hector them about that. Um, So there's so much wonderful about this generation, Um, but I do think they often need a a nudge towards 
away from the virtual and more towards the the real, um, but without abandoning the, the the wonderful advantages of of technology. So the question is, how do you find that blend? And that was the challenge, really, of writing this chapter. And I think the blend is is to do both. Um, I this last summer I took a course to kind of broaden my understanding of insect biology, and it was on a group of insects called the Microlepidoptera, which are these very tiny little moths. And because of technology, I was able to identify moths that would have been impossible to identify years ago. Now you can just take a picture with your digital camera or your or your smartphone, and then you can drop it into uh, an application, and up will come some good guesses of what it is. Um, in the olden days, like 15 years ago, you would have had to collect it, kill it, pin it, and send it off to Washington, D.C., and wait six months for an expert to come back with an identification. So this is a great time to be a naturalist. But it's also a great time to remember to slow down and engage with nature and with real things around you. Um, I, I, at least myself, am not satisfied with just looking stuff up or Googling things. I'd rather actually have it emerge from my brain. <laughs> it's much much more, much better company than uh, than uh, the internet, I think. There were two other things that you shared in your book, and I, I made some notes here. And one has to do with this little section where you were talking about these baby birds and how baby birds learn to sing. And I put here in the margins, there's just no substitute for the real thing. It's like you and I, you and I were alive to hear, what was it, wasn't it um, the Coca-Cola company ain't nothing like the real thing, baby? Do you remember that? Of course. Well, it, th- that's what I immediately thought of when I saw uh, what you'd written here. Tell us a little bit about this discovery because I thought it was interesting, but it also speaks to why you just got to get out there and do it. You can't explore nature virtually all the time. You've got to eventually go out into nature. Yeah. Well, I think the research is actually coming in now fairly convincingly that if you uh, there's certain things that are just simply unteachable by flat computer screens. Um, there's, it's a great resource if you've got a question, but if you actually want to put that knowledge in some part of your brain where you can then not just retrieve it, but use it to, to develop some real insights about the world and about yourself, that is not a sufficient kind of a learning experience. And again, there is good research, I think, documenting that. So, uh, the the analogy that I often think of is is a documented case in the study of how birds, young birds, learn their songs. Um, and so scientists had taken young birds out of the nest at a very early age and put them in a laboratory, and they played tape recordings of bird songs, which is kind of analogous to showing them a video screen or something like that. So there was no bird in the cage. But what they discovered was that there was a very short window of time when these baby birds could learn the normal song of their species. And that was between the ages of 10 days and 50 days. If you played them bird song in on a tape recorder or on a computer screen, um, when they were younger than 10 days old or older than 50 days old, they were unable to learn it. It was just as if it bounced off their brain. So that became kind of a dogma. That's, that's what I taught my students in the early years. That's what I had been taught, that, that, that birds have a very narrow window of time where they can learn information about song. Turned out those experiments were flawed in one important respect, and that is that if you actually put a live bird in the cage with these young birds, 
they can learn for a much, much longer time. So the presence of a real living bird, I don't know whether they're emitting heat or pheromones or just the company of a bird makes young birds better learners. So they can they can continue to learn for dozens of days more. So the this has always made me sort of a little bit um, wary about uh, efforts to do remote education, to learn online. I know you can learn certain things online, but I, I really do think there's something about the interaction with real people in the presence of real people that makes us learn differently. I agree. Well, and it's all these little nuances that you can't even sometimes scientifically account for that you're picking up when you're actually in the environment, in nature. One of the other things that um, I've heard you mention a couple of times is Anne Comstock's Handbook of Nature Study. (laughs) There's this funny quote that you share uh, about her because this is a huge book. And she apologizes for it. And then you quote what she said, but it really speaks to just how much you gain when you're actually among nature. Yeah, she apologizes for the length of the book. I think it's 887 pages. It weighs a a couple of pounds filled with natural history information. But then she says kind of in justification for the length of this book, really, it doesn't contain anything that an intelligent country child of 12 ought to know. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I think that was true of, um, certainly would have been true of my grandparents. And um, I think I think back to, to my own childhood and going to nature camp at the Pleasant Valley Sanctuary in, uh, in Lenox, Massachusetts. Um, and I was clearly taught by people who had been taught by Comstock's book. Well, when you introduce uh, this format to folks, this the format of your natural history journal, You say that the first step is simply to notice what is going on around you. And then I thought you gave a really good overview of how to approach it. And it's on page 19. And I thought it'd be great if you read that to us, then we can talk about it on the other side. But it starts out, it's on page 19, and it's the paragraph that starts out, For Beginning Naturalists. Okay. For Beginning Naturalists, we provide explicit guidance about how to become more knowledgeable. The first step is simply to notice what is around you. Begin with whatever catches your interest. Nuances in the songs of American robins and other birds that awaken you at dawn. The intricate and individually distinctive ways in which leaves of different species unfold on the trees and shrubs in your backyard or in the city park. The movement of insects feeding in your vegetable garden or pollinating the flowers along the sidewalk on your way to work. Enjoy what Aldo Leopold called the 100 little dramas taking place every day. The shape, size, color, and behavior of plants and animals will help you tell different species apart, figure out what they do, and understand why. What color is the face of the dragonfly sunning itself on a fallen oak leaf? If you snap a sugar maple twig in early spring, how many droplets of sap fall within a minute? Let yourself get carried away by curiosity. If you work on becoming an observant naturalist at a pace that feels comfortable to you, and if you continue the practice over time, you will be amazed at how much you can teach yourself. Wow. I loved that passage. There were so many things that I pulled out of it. The first is just that phrase, 
100 little dramas that are taking place. That just that just like grabbed my heart. And then the other thing was these follow-up questions that you asked about what color is the face of the dragonfly? Um, if you snap a, a, a sugar maple twig in early spring, how many droplets of sap fall within a minute? You're massively curious. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, there's, um, I don't know, um, you know where you live, how late the dragonflies are out, but if, let's see, today here in Brunswick, Maine, it's raining and it's 45 degrees, so it's not a good day for dragonflies. But I think if the sun were to come out, even though we've already had some snow, we would still have dragonflies. Uh, at this time of year, the only, the only type of dragonfly around are called um, meadowhawks. But there are actually three species of them, and they're very companionable little insects. They'll, they'll land on you um, uh, all the time. And you actually have to look at their face to see which of the three species is landing on you. So that's kind of partly where the curiosity comes from. But yeah. um, I, like today's garbage day, I have to go haul the garbage out to the, to the roadside. And on my way out, I'm going to actually study the, the buds of shrubs that have lost all their leaves just to see if I can tell the difference without having to look at leaves. So it's just a matter of, of taking joy in observing small things around you. I, I can guarantee you, if you take a close look at a dragonfly's face and you go through the exercises figuring out what color it is, you're going to spot some things that you didn't discover. Like, for example, males have eyeballs that, that uh, touch each other in the middle. They go end to end and that's that's so they can find females and they can find prey and that's a little discovery you'd never make if you hadn't looked at the color of their face it's the eyeball equivalent of the unibrow exactly (laughs) (laughs) but more functional more functional than the unibrow yes way more functional see i love all of that and and i love the fact that you are i guess somehow giving us a prescription for enhancing our own curiosity, which we should be, you know, when we're outside. But I think sometimes, especially as gardeners, we can become so task-oriented. We're not nurturing those other skills like curiosity. Well, if you develop, uh, if you develop the skills of being attentive, it actually will help you in your tasks as well. It will make you a better gardener. You're right. The other thing that I personally enjoyed, because I agree with it, is what you talk about on page 21, where you're talking about being a naturalist in the digital age. And you talk about the difference between writing observations with a pen or a pencil versus typing them. And in the margin, I just put, this is personal. Writing makes this journal personal. That's what makes it personal versus maybe more clinical or academic. This is a personal journal. This is your personal observations. And writing is what's going to make it stick and be more meaningful for you. Yeah, yeah. the, the exercise of physically writing something down, I think, leads to memories that actually stick in your, your brain as opposed to typing something. Think how many uh, little texts and emails and things that we just, that fly from our fingertips and the next day, you have no memory at all of what it was you wrote. Whereas when I, when I actually sit and write things down, I think that physical act connects my brain to, the, to what it is I've seen. Um, and I find actually I can remember things, which is wonderful. 
Boy, you're right. I tell you what, I'm 40, I'm 47, going to be 48. I'm old enough where I have to keep going. Now, wait a minute. What year was that? What year is it now? And how old am I? Um, but anyway, um, I was, this is my, this is my reality last night. And it, and so when I read this about writing it down versus typing it, I'm like, yep, you and I talked in the pre-chat, you know, I'm updating the kitchen. I'm supposed to get the painter, this trim color. And in my mind's eye, I could see the paint can and I could see my handwriting on it. And I could see that I had said, you know, paint for trim. It's like vivid. I could see it. Do you think I could find the actual can? No. And then I thought, you know what? I think I took a picture of that paint can and I looked and sure enough, I had a picture of it and there it was. There was my own handwriting, the code for the paint color or whatever. But that is what was sticking in my mind. I could not, you know, if I had it written on a or typed it on a document somewhere, I wasn't going to find it. That's for sure. You need a little paint on your fingernail and then you would have found it. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly but, you know, right. Um, the, as you say, a, a journal is a personal thing. It doesn't. It doesn't mean it's a private thing. And it's hopefully you can share it with with other people, the other family members. And it also doesn't mean that you can't type whatever information you want and upload it to a, a citizen science database like eBird or iNaturalist or I'm sure there's a garden equivalent. Um, it's just that this is another way of doing it that feels very fulfilling, I think, and helps you um, feel more present. Exactly. Well, and in this age of, you know, we talk about mindfulness all of the time. This is another mindfulness exercise, really. Exactly. That's the whole point. When I got to page 23 and you were talking about the skills of observation, you shared a little bit of a glimpse into what it's like to be a student in one of your classes. So I, I, I put in the margins, Professor Wheelwright, this is what it would be like and just experience what it's like to be taught by you. And I just had to chuckle because I could see how some students would be like, yes, this is awesome. I'm thinking of my oldest son, Will. And then I'm thinking of my my third my third child and he would be like, what? What is going on here? So I have to have you read this um, this little introduction where it starts off with one of my favorite college courses, uh, just right to the bottom of the page. Okay. One of my favorite college courses to teach is Advanced Winter Field Ecology. It's not your typical class that meets inside a stuffy lecture hall for an hour three times a week. Instead, my 11 students and I are together every Friday of the semester from 8.30 a.m. until 5 p.m. Regardless of the weather, which is often brutal in Maine in January and February, we spend the entire morning out in the field collecting data to answer one simple focused natural history question each week. Skills that allow us to make novel discoveries about nature in a short time are the same skills that you can use to deepen your own knowledge of nature. I'm I'm sure that some kids know what they're getting into when they sign up for this class, but there has to be an occasional student that's like, oh my goodness, we're outside the entire day? Well, this is an advanced course, so they and it actually has some prerequisites, so Every single student knows precisely what they're getting into. Maybe they probably had me in another course. Okay. So, no, I've never had a student in that course that really didn't just love it and thrive. You might take a look on the Bowdoin College website and search for Wheelwright and Bears. I think that's all you would, that would get you there. Okay. Uh, we, did a, we did a field trip where I took the students out and biologists from Maine Inland Fisheries and Wildlife tracked a sow bear to her den and they tranquilized her and, and hauled her out of the 
out of the den, and then while they were measuring her, they handed the cubs to my students uh, to hold. Um, and so you can imagine we're all out there in the snow, uh, and they're getting academic credit for holding bear cubs. What's not to like about that? I, what an experience. But I guarantee your, you know, that your third child, who you were saying, might you know, be wondering why to take this course would, uh, would be smitten by bears. Oh, what an experience. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've done I've done a field trip now, maybe in four different classes, and the second to last time I did it was when sort of smartphones were starting to become more popular, and I noticed a discouraging thing. Where we are out in this gorgeous remote area, and we're holding bears, and people were taking selfies with the bears, and then they turned their back to the bears to look at their cameras, but the bear was right there. They should have. Um, so anyway, the, the last time I taught it, I said to the students, I'm going to be the official photographer of this field trip. Nobody is allowed to bring any cell phones. Yeah. And it went much better. And the students really engaged. They were present with the bear and then they, they had their pictures as well. Yes. And then they can focus on it. And I think the students are grateful when you nudge them away from that, the popular culture, which kind of pulls them maybe deeper into that than they really want to be. They, I, I found the Bowdoin students really love a genuine contact with nature. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You and I kind of touched on this a little bit in the pre-chat, but when you're living in uncertain times and there seems to be heightened anxiety, getting back to nature is a way you can really anchor yourself in the world. It's a way that you can calm yourself and reground yourself. Oh, nature, natural history is, is medicine. It's, it's therapy. And, uh, you know, if you've got, if you got troubles on your mind or you're anxious about national or international or local news, um, take a walk and, <laughs> and smell the roses um, yeah. or do a little gardening. Yes, absolutely. I loved this section that starts on page 25. It's your top 10 list for how to become an observant naturalist. And you start out with the suggestion of cultivating curiosity and be mindful wherever you are. That's yeah, that's that's where to start. And again, you don't need to be a trained biologist or or veteran gardener. This is something anybody can do. It's just open your eyes and your ears and your nostrils just a little bit wider. One of the things you point out here that I thought was so valuable is you give a suggestion for starting out with birds because you remind us that there's so much like us. They make music. They're active during the daytime, just like us. And there's just so many wonderful aspects of them that we can appreciate because they're relatable. Yeah, yeah. And so they can be a gateway to nature. Um, so start with birds. And it turns out that butterflies and dragonflies are a lot like birds, which are a lot like us. So move on from birds to butterflies and dragonflies. And then that'll get you interested in small flowers and uh, large trees. And then you can look at the things that are growing on the trees, like lichens and mosses, and it opens up the whole natural world to you. The second point that you give is learn the names and taxonomy of the plants and animals around you. You say start with the common names, but then try to learn the scientific names just because they're clues. I always am fascinated whenever I get a chance to talk to an expert like yourself when it comes to pronunciation, people can get so hung up and so intimidated. Do you have any advice for folks who are like, ah, I, you know, I, I'd like to do it. I just feel like I can't say it without making a fool of myself. 
Well, I would say look at the scientific names, but unless you have a reason to use them, uh, don't feel obliged to. I, as, as you mentioned, it, uh, you can often learn something just by glancing at the scientific name, so you don't need to know how to pronounce it. Pronounce it. But as far as uh, pronunciation, the, the way I learned is um, not by talking to Latin professors or Greek teachers, um, but just going out with people who are knowledgeable, and I just did what they did. So I'm probably pronouncing them wrong myself, but at least I'm in good company. <laughs> at least you're in good company. Well, number four says, go on walks with knowledgeable naturalists and take notes. This is really where you get to stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, <laughs> or your neighbors or your friends or just people who know something you don't know. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned here your trip to Costa Rica. Can you read that little paragraph for us? Sure. As a graduate student, I took a two-month-long course in tropical ecology in Costa Rica. I quickly learned to latch on to whoever was willing to download their extensive knowledge. To this day, on such excursions, I carry a pencil and take prodigious notes in the small, waterproof, right-in-the-rain notebook that is always in my pocket. Back home, I'll consult the field guide or the internet to correct my misspellings or clarify any confusion. I love that. I love that you included uh, the type of notebook. It's called Write in the Rain, R-I-T-E, and I'm assuming it's a notebook that you can still use even if it gets wet. Oh yeah, no. You can. Uh, these are these are um, uh, notebooks that foresters and surveyors use. So, and it wouldn't have to be that particular brand, though. I I do like Right in the Rain. I actually once uh, lost a Right in the Rain notebook filled with data, uh, and I left it on an island in the Bay of Fundy between Nova Scotia and Maine. Oh, wow! And I came back two years later, and I found my notebook. Oh my And it's gone through several winters, and I opened it up, and you could read everything perfectly. So oh. uh, I, I swear by these things. Um, yeah, but it uh, you don't even have to get that. If it's not raining, just stick an index card or a folded piece of paper, recycled paper, and make sure you've got a pencil. And um, I hardly take a walk, a long walk, without having that in my back pocket, because I might have a thought, and if I can write it down, then I don't have to worry that I'm gonna it's gonna slip out of my aging brain. <laughs> well, I I love number five and it kind of is a nice segue from what you just said because you're saying ask how and why questions. And if you're asking those, you're getting to deeper meaning, deeper conclusions around what you're seeing, what you're recording. Um, but those are great questions to ask. How and why? Those are your question starters. Well, that, um, it's not the place. Actually, the first question most people ask is what? Like, what, what am I looking at? How big is it? Uh, you know, what's its name? But if you really want to now delve a little deeper and understand something about what drives it, um, why it has evolved the way it has, uh, what are, are different features of its, of its, um, of its natural history, then you start to have to ask questions about how and, and why. And those are really the most fulfilling and interesting kinds of questions. But it, it takes time to develop that skill. That's yeah, it does take time. And, and this is where, uh, again, a nice segue into what you say for point number six. Scrutinize, touch, listen, smell, measure, get intimate with nature. And I love what you said here. I'd love for you to read it aloud. Okay. Several years ago, I took a nature walk with a college student who had been brought up 
in a big city. Maybe because she had never been exposed to nature, she recoiled at the prospect of touching the fat caterpillar that I held out toward her. I urged her at least to come close enough to admire the insect's beauty. Standing so far away, how would you even know how many legs it has, I asked. Her response was dismaying, but not unusual in the digital age. Quote, I would Google it. Unfortunately, Googling it is not the same as feeling its scratchy footsteps on your palm. Actual experiences lead to more enduring memories and a more profound comprehension of the natural world. If you want to learn more about nature, scrutinize, touch, listen, smell, measure. I learned botany the old school way to identify an unfamiliar plant species. I was taught to pluck a leaf, peer closely at it, finger it, crush it, and sniff it. Elm leaves are raspy. They feel like the five o'clock shadow on your father's chin. Yellow and black birch twigs smell like wintergreen when broken. Cherry twigs, which in winter look like birches, smell sweetly bitter like burnt almonds. Gold thread, a woodland herb, gets its name from its bright golden roots, but you can appreciate that only if you dig up a plant. Many naturalists learn insects in the same way, by netting, pinning, and storing them in a collection so that their fine structures could be examined under a magnifying glass or dissecting scope. I'm, I'm imagining standing there with you and thinking, come on, let's go. And then you're still busy inspecting, <laughs> you know, what's going on. This is the, um, the equivalent of what most people experience on vacation. You've got a family member that likes to read everything. You know, you're standing in front of the plaque right. of the battle scene and, and everybody else is ready to go back to the car. And there's one person in your party who's like, no, 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 I got to read all this. I want to, I want to take it in. You're doing the same thing when you're out with nature. It's just how you are when you're out in it. This is, this is just how you've learned to process it. Well, uh, my in-laws sometimes complain about that. They're a very goal-oriented people. Uh, we <laughs> want to hike and get to the peak of the mountain, but I actually don't care if I get to the peak. Uh, I want to be able to pause and look under this log and see what I found or chase some bird sound down and figure out who made it. I mean, your description of elm leaves, you said that are raspy, that feel like the five o'clock shadow on your father's chin. There's no other way to know that unless right. you're really breaking it down. But what a great description. <laughs> Dude, have you ever done that? Have you, have you felt uh, that is a good way to tell their leaves? I haven't, but I'm going next, to now. Next summer, go out and get a try. <laughs> I am. I'm going to. I thought I just I really liked that. In my own garden, I have a lot of student gardeners that I work with throughout the year, and I always tell people that if you're going to work with kids, you need to bring the cool factor. You need to be able to talk about things and point out the super cool elements because that's what hooks kids. And it's things like that, having them feel that leaf and really think about, well, what else, you know, feels like that? Or, you know, encourage them to touch the, you know, the caterpillar. I, I really, really liked that. But I could also at the same time relate to the student who's going, ooh, I don't know that I want to touch that caterpillar. Um, but I see both sides of it. I see the appeal of, you know, breaking it down. And that is the cool factor. That's really where you get hooked. 
Well, it sounds like you're very much a teacher, so you know that pleasure you get when you have that student who was bored looking or shy or whatever, and then you see the, you see the, the glow and they make a discovery. And uh, that's the best payment you could ever get as a teacher. It, that's exactly right. And, you know, on the very next page, there was something that kind of made me chuckle. It's on page 36. This is where you're talking, you're really encouraging people to do this, to get out there, walk in nature, you know, feel things, touch things, smell things, ex- fully experience them. You say, in contrast, in North America, there is little to be nervous about in nature, despite what you might conclude from reading the popular media. Some tips to keep in mind. Keep a wary eye out for poison ivy wasp nests and brown tail moth caterpillars, and definitely do not touch, smell, or taste them. And then you said, <laughs> you said, before sticking your arm deep down a hole, and I'm going, Nat, I would never do that. But, it's, but you said, consider the probability of cornering a... <laughs> cornering a muskrat or a snake in there and i'm like are you kidding me that's top of mind for me treat i think you need to start with small holes and just put your finger down and then then go up to the wrist and by before you know it you'll have your you'll be up to your shoulder oh my gosh listen you know the movie national treasure with um nicholas cage i don't (laughs) okay well there's this movie national treasure with nicholas cage and of course he finds all these fantastic artifacts and they're always in like under all of our national monuments so there's there's like this huge gold finding of gold under the black hills it's all made up of course but in order to access this they're standing on top of this rock and they have to do this they have to stick their arm in and i'm going no no everybody in the theater is going no don't do it um but that's that's how they get the lever to you know get in there but this is uh, you know that's a real this is you know real stuff that you've got to deal with when you're in the natural world is sometimes getting over your your own inhibitions and fears about the natural world. You say, treat deep water overhanging widowmaker trees and steep cliffs with respect. Is there anything that kind of gives you pause or that, that makes you a little more nervous? Do you have your own personal, I don't know, hang-ups or things that you know, give you pause when you're in nature? I'm just trying to think um, what I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll if I see a snake and I'm, I'm not ready for it, I'll I'll uh, I'll jump. Yep. Um, and scorpions in the tropics, um, <laughs> you know, obviously, like, yeah, lions, that'll make me jump. <laughs> but otherwise, no, I'm really not. You know, I'm, I don't like. Yes. Yeah, like I say, steep cliffs make me a little nervous. But okay. it's, yeah, it's just a matter of being sensitive in terms of the natural world. There's not much that. Yeah, there is to be afraid of. Again, it's a little different if you're in in uh, in Africa, but um, yeah, where you really do have to be pretty sen- sensible about it all. Yes. Number seven was to conduct simple experiments. I'm just curious if there's an experiment or an idea that you think is a great starting point for people. Um, put up a bird box. That's an experiment. Or put up a bat box or a, or a bee box. Um, nest box, or when you mow the lawn, that's an experiment. Or when you put bird seed out on a bird feeder, you're doing an experiment. Um, try different bird seeds. Plant your flowers with, as a gardener. If you're putting one crop next to the other, just pay attention to the to where you're putting things and look at it, what the effect is. And if you start to 
incorporate a little bit of uh, what we call the experimental design. Um, you know, your, your replication that is repeating different um, different ways that you plant things, for example, so that you you have some sense of what the variation is likely to be normally. Then, then that experimental approach is how we start to learn something, have a little more confidence in your understanding of nature. I love that. And this last point that you make, I think, is so wise as well. And that is to not be afraid to not only learn from others, but also to teach what you're learning, to share it with people. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that is, if I learn uh, to identify a particular moss or lichen that I didn't know before, it's a pretty fragile grasp of that information that I have initially. But if I now if I now can point it out to somebody else, it's actually done them a favor, but it's done me a favor too, because it's kind of lodged that a little more firmly in my memory. Speaking of teaching, I have to have you chat just really quickly about these videos that you're producing, and you're calling them Nature Moments. Yeah, so I decided last fall when um, it seemed like everything was kind of crazy and people weren't paying attention to the environment, and that one of the ways to get people to value our environment and realize that it w- is worth investing in protecting our environment is is to open people's eyes to nature. And so I committed myself to um, doing producing a, a weekly series of 90-second natural history videos that are meant to be different from your standard natural history video, something like Planet Earth, which is magnificent footage of nature, but done by professional photographers using super super uh, high-end equipment um, and producing images of nature that are wonderfully entertaining, fascinating, aesthetic, but that you're never going to see. So in contrast, what I'm trying to do in these nature moment videos is to walk out my backyard with my own camera that you could you could have something it's not that fancy a camera and um, take footage of things that you could see yourself and try to tie a little bit of natural history about the species to a, a broader ecological or evolutionary or environmental concept so you learn a little something about the how and why as well so the idea is um, to produce one a week for an entire year to show people that even in November and December and January, when you think it's lifeless outside, that there's there's plenty to see and to learn. Well, and I love that you mentioned that because you've got a little cutaway in your book and you talk about finding life after a hard frost, which I think most people would have an immediate reaction going, what do you mean there's life out there after a hard frost? And then the other place is in the city. So you address both of these things. Do you want to just touch on that really quick and then we'll wrap up? Okay, good. Um, the nice thing about nature is that wherever you go in the world, wherever you go in this country, you can always find it. And in, in the, it, it takes a little bit more, I don't know, dedication or attentiveness if you're in the middle of a city because there's so much concrete and pavement around. But if you look closely in the cracks, you're going to find little plants. And if you look closely in the dirt, you'll see insects. And if there's uh, a garden nearby, you'll see flowers being pollinated by uh, flies and butterflies, and you'll see migratory birds coming through. So there really is nature uh, ev- everywhere you look. And I think people in cities really need that connection with nature more than, especially now, um, We I think people tend to be detached from nature, and uh, just opening your eyes to nature in the city is, is a wonderful habit to develop. One other thing I, I would say one of the advantages of, of keeping records of nature in your own backyard is that 
you can become an authority on what you see. So we hear about, we hear claims, for example, that um, the climate is actually not changing, that it's actually a fraud and fake news and so on. Well, you don't need to rely on other people. You can actually see for yourself that this is true. So I've actually been collecting data in my own backyard for 30 years, and uh, and um, I present a table in the, in the book that actually shows when the first frost happens every fall and has over the last 30 years or the first snowflakes have fallen. And so you you now can be your own judge about uh, about events in the news like climate change. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great that's a great point. And there have been a lot of articles about that too. That people who actually keep their own personal records are verifying all of that. Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, so many people are reliant on the the media telling them whether there is or isn't climate change. Well. <laughs> Yeah. Find out for yourself. <laughs> yes, find out for yourself. I'd love to have you close by reading something you wrote right in the beginning of your book. I thought it was a wonderful way to end our time together because you're pulling in some pretty amazing quotes, I think, that build the case for keeping a naturalist journal. Okay, I'll read this. Becoming more closely acquainted with our own environment has also brought us profound personal fulfillment. As Richard Louvre documents in his book, Last Child in the Woods, spending time with nature makes us happier, healthier, smarter, more grounded, and more creative. In contrast, when the busyness of our modern lives divorces us from nature, we can suffer negative physical and psychological effects, a condition that Louvre calls nature deficit disorder. You're never too young or too old to start recording nature observations. As Charles Roth confesses in Keeping a Nature Journal, quote, I wish I had kept a journal that recorded my childhood discoveries of nature. We are confident that anyone, no matter your age or where you live, can develop the skills to become a more alert observer of nature. We hope that your growing knowledge will give you a better appreciation of your surroundings and that you will find opportunities to put that knowledge into action as a citizen scientist. I couldn't agree more, but also I want to make sure that we point out that your naturalist notebook, all of the proceeds to this book are being donated to nonprofit conservation and environmental educational organizations. Yeah, this has been very much a labor of love for both Baron Heinrich and, and me. Um, and, um, our passion is teaching, and, and our goal is to get as many people turned on to nature as possible. And so um, that's why we wanted to donate all of our royalties to conservation and environmental education. So hope people enjoy it, and, uh, and I hope they uh, spread the word and, and share what they've learned with their family and friends and community members. Well, I agree. And it's a beautiful book. It would make a gorgeous gift or, or gift for anyone during the year at any time. This was absolutely wonderful to speak with you, Nat, about your book. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, you have a great Thanksgiving, Nat. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for all you do to make people appreciate their environment. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. All right, you too. Well, that's it for our show today featuring Nat Wheelwright and the wonderful resource, the five-year calendar journal he wrote with Bernd Heinrich called The Naturalist Notebook. 
I hope today's show inspired you to get this resource and begin charting your own observations. The Naturalist Notebook is a humble tool that can yield powerful results because it's a wonderful way to not only record the goings-on in the natural world around you, but it is such a great way to see the rhythms and the patterns of nature. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that Nat shared on the show today under the Still Growing podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I'm so thankful to my team over at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadina. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens in Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was featured on episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and how you can incorporate them into your garden. For my sign off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. Imagine how much more you would be able to experience and to express if you were able to stop and really look to genuinely connect with the natural world around you, whether that's your garden, a park in your neighborhood, a container on your front porch or patio, or any place that's available to you. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Thank you.